How do some of the world's sharpest minds start their day? By putting their brain first. And it's not just our secret leaders who kick off every day with heights. From Stephen Fry to best-selling author and fellow podcaster Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, who give us rave reviews. So if you care about your brain's health and cognitive potential, think heights. Listeners can get 25% off their first month with the code LEADERSHEIGHTS at www.yourheights.com. Hello and welcome back to The Secret Lives of Leaders and a big thank you for making it to episode three. Well done. Show some dedication. Um, our guest today is Graham Hobson of Photobox fame. How did you uh, manage to, uh, before we start, how, many, how did you manage to get such an accomplished entrepreneur in? Um, so I think the real question is how did I get such an accomplished entrepreneur to invest in my business? That's True. definitely the bigger question. Um, I managed to meet Graham at an event about a year ago, and I did what I always do, which is talk incessantly. Um, did you sort of tell him about your cats? Yeah, I definitely told him about my cats. He's got cats. We definitely bonded about cats. It's hard for me to bond with people that don't have cats because I've got very little left to like me for. Um, but beyond that, I was talking about mobile, and he was talking about the struggles they've had at mobile at Photobox. And uh, if I'm completely honest, within two weeks of having met him for the first time, he'd signed papers, put his money in, and given us his full backing. And um, actually, you know, I have to say he's been one of the best investors we've ever had because he's an entrepreneur doesn't mess around doesn't waste your time so he's either in or out and either supports you or he doesn't and he's incredibly proactive regularly always emails i mean he's emailed us he emailed me i just showed you he emailed me a minute ago on a sunday afternoon um so he's just always there thinking so he's lovely like such a nice guy so in today's podcast yeah graham is uh as, as dan mentioned the founder of co-founder of photobox and you know if you haven't heard of photobox and you live in the uk you've been living under a rock uh one of the biggest online photo printing companies out there um, what's quite interesting also that his company bought Moonpig uh, Nick Jenkins of Moonpig uh, that we interviewed in episode one very true so that's not generally the theme of how we uh, go for it. it's not all uh, big fish eating little fish and interviewing both sides of the story but um, it's quite nice because we get we get a little insight into that as well in today's episode so um, you know I think maybe we'll just crack on what do you think Rich yep sit back get a glass of coffee or wine Glass your, of coffee. Glass Who of coffee. drinks out of glass when you drink well, coffee? Well, you don't drink coffee, so this know. is why you have apps. And you've literally got a flask in front of me, so you've anyway, probably never seen a glass or a coffee. Let's get on with it. All right. From Runway East Studios in London, welcome to the Secret Lives of Leaders. Today's guest is a very inspiring, down-to-earth, digital printing entrepreneur, Graham Hobson. A quick Google search of Graham Hobson will reveal he was voted the best wedding and corporate entertainment band in the Gold Coast of Australia. (laughs) However, upon further inspection, the real Graham Hobson is perhaps more interested in technology than music, despite having a Wikipedia page entry as the head coach for the University of Richmond in Virginia in 1902. Not true either. Not true? No. How do you know that? Well, it's not me. Okay. So, Graham, I know you'll, you'll say you're old at a, on occasions, but you're not that old. So to help our listeners find the right one online, you are, in fact, Graham Hobson of Photobox fame, are you not? Correct. Fantastic. You may not be the first Graham Hobson, as it turns out, but you're probably the most successful, seeing as your namesake only ever recorded three wins and went down as Richmond's 16th most successful coach of the 1900s. <laughs> but anyway, we digress. Photobox. The idea was simple. Allow customers to print their most meaningful photos, such as their babies and families, onto physical products such as calendars and mugs from the comfort of their own home. Back in 1999, when he conceived the idea, it was truly original. And when they went live in 2000, they made £2.70 on their first day. 16 years later, they still have that very same customer, though the business has been through some huge changes. With an undisclosed but not impossible to find online suggested exit of a few hundred million pounds, And over a thousand employees later, I think it's fair to call Graham one of the UK's most successful entrepreneurs. So it's a treat to have you on the show, Graham. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. So first things first, to get you in the mood and of course to throw you off topic so you're immediately uncomfortable, please answer some of these quick fire questions for us. Okay. Cats or dogs? Uh, Cats. Good answer. Tough answer though. I grew up with dogs, have a cat now. But go with cats. Great answer. I wish everyone was like you, Graham. (laughs) 
Uh, Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin? So this is a best of the worst uh, outcome. You know, no, less, lesser of two evils. Which well, one do you love more? I, I guess theoretically we could get rid of Trump in four years, right? So I'll, I'll go with him. Okay. Uh, photos or music? Uh, I have to say photos. Okay. Do you? Is that how you feel or you just feel like that's best for your stock price? It, they're both important to me. But okay. uh, yeah, shot, stock price wins. Okay. Uh, Democrat or Republican? Uh, Democrat. Uh, some hesitation there, any reason? Well, it has to make sense, right? You know, and you have to be quite close to the middle. It has to be in the rational zone. So, yeah, I have Democrat tendencies, but, you know, there are times when you have to veer off course. Okay, safety first. Yeah. Alcohol or drugs? Alcohol. CTO or CEO, as you've been both? Uh, CTO. Or possibly CPO. Okay, interesting. Well, it's yeah. not really a straight-up answer. If you could only do one for the rest of your life, which would it be? Uh, it has to be CTO, more toys. Fair enough. Less investors. Uh, Favourite musician? Uh, oh, I, I can't, can't say. That's what Spotify's for. Let's just say Leonard Cohen to <laughs> honour him this week. Okay. City life or countryside life? Oh, definitely city life. Unless there's a zombie apocalypse and then country life will probably be safer. So country life too boring for you? Or what's, oh, what's yeah. No, no. I'm an urban person. My wife is too. We just love soaking up cities and okay. being in the centre of things. Fair play. So high end or high street? Uh, high street, definitely. Uh, we were talking about your jacket the other day, so uh, <laughs> you look like that one, I believe. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just don't get expensive clothing. I'm sure people do, but, you know, it's like, you find something that fits and buy it. That's it. Thank God for my That's business model. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank God for my business model. Some people do care about expensive clothing. Oh, but... yeah. Oops. I used to be. encouraging people to uh, <laughs> spend a bit more. Um, so, well-paid corporate job or do it all again? Do it all again. Good answer. Okay. Before you started, you and your co-founder, Mark Chapman, were both working in banking together in the 90s, which was a famous time for the capital, if not for all the right reasons, obviously. Were there any fun stories you could share with us about your time spent in the very seedy, high-paid world of investment banking? Um, I, I, I'm not sure I want to commit any to, to an archive. Uh... I mean, it, it was a time full of excess. Um, banking there's was... Already, there's already a few stories in an archive somewhere about the time. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was it was like a startup industry in London and, and I'm sure elsewhere in the world. You know, banks were building these huge um, trading floors and investing really heavily and hiring quite irrational people to work in them. I mean, very kind of high dopamine, living in the moment, people who would be, you know, perhaps excellent traders, but couldn't restrain themselves in other parts of their lives so yeah i've i've seen it all if any if anybody's ever read um liars poker by michael lewis i think he also wrote the big short yeah uh it it's just it just rings so true it, you you recognize it all and i've definitely seen lots of bad behavior but also it was a great period for me and learning uh how business works and how technology can go into very rapid cycles so i loved it great wouldn't go back came, to it though you also no fab you also came into close contact with the famous rogue trader indeed uh, nick leeson i did i i uh so i was working um for a, a small consulting company and then i had a chance to do a contract and it was in a software package called holos which i i'd never heard of but i got kind of trained one sunday and turned up on the monday as an expert in bearing securities that's how uh, that <laughs> And they had no space on the trading floor, so they put me into a little quad of desks in the settlements area, and sitting opposite me was Nick Leeson. Uh, and I think this was probably a few months before he went out to Singapore. So yeah, I got to know him, and nice guy, and uh, was amazed like everybody when everything happened. So he didn't have any sort of twinkle in his eye of uh, ultimate <laughs> cheekiness that brought down a whole bank? I think we all had that twinkle in our eye at the time, but uh, his, his was more impactful than the rest of us. Is it fair to just say that ultimately he was the most entrepreneurial of all of you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the wrong direction. Yeah, though, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you moved on from the immoral playground and into not quite so glamorous world of entrepreneurialism yourself. Mm. So 16 years at the same company. Can you give us a synopsis of how you started? Um, well, I think like a, a lot of entrepreneurial activity, it started because I had a need in my own life. I had two young kids at the time and took lots of pictures with my wife. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to Boots every couple of weeks with a roll of film and most of the results aren't that good. I, I'd like to get a digital camera plus it's a gadget it would have been cool. And 
So I bought a Sony camera um, and really, you know, to cut a long story short, just found that there was nowhere to get prints, nowhere online in UK, in Europe. Um, I found one company in the States called Pix.com. It's not there anymore. Um, but, you know, there was there was nothing. And I thought, well, it can't be that difficult. If you go, if you can go into any high street chemist and there's a mini lab there, why not buy one of those mini labs, connect it to a website and, and off you go. And it, it really felt like a kind of uh, order management system like I would have built in one of the banks, uh, but with a mini lab at the end. So uh, started to write a business plan, kept on expecting Kodak and Fuji and anyone else to launch any time now. And, and you wrote this business plan on the tube, didn't I you? I wrote it on the tube on the way into work. I think it was around October 99. Um, and it just you know kept going. I, I, would, I was ready to give up at any point. The, the real driver for me was I wanted the service. If somebody else provided it, I would have been perfectly happy. Uh, and then it just got to the point where, you know, I had a plan. It was quite well formed. Uh, I started to talk to people I work with who said, yeah, we'd back you if you did this. So uh, at the end of 2000, after a bit of arm wrestling with Mark, um, who wasn't so keen on the idea, uh, we went for it. And uh, yeah, very, very, very slow start. And you mentioned the £2.70 sales on our launch day. I think we had a few zero days after that. Um, you know, we really were two guys in a shabby um, space in the Clerkenwell area with a mini lab and um, some made up desks and we were just kind of winging it. Did either of you know anything beforehand about uh, printing photos? Uh, so Mark Mark had a dark room when he was a teenager, I think. And um, he, he uh, so he had a bit of experience, but none of us had any professional experience. And in fact, one of the things I wanted to do was to go and find a professional partner, like a pro lab that would know what they were talking about and help advise us. So we did that. We gave away a little bit of equity, but found an excellent company called Metro Imaging in Clerkenwell, who were specializing in uh, fashion photography, really. Um, to be our credentials and our advisors, and that really helped help get us started. I'm picking up the mic. Hmm? I've got a mic, yeah. Oh, great. This one along. Um, how long did it take you to build the original product? Um, so I remember, you know, we wrote the business plan, had enough to go and out, out and raise money with that. Um, and then I, over the kind of Christmas and New Year period of 2000, the start of 2000, I was writing a spec effectively for um, for the website. I think I wrote that in a week. We, we put it out to tender. Um, we, we had, there were so many new media companies popping up at the time, and some of them were really expensive and promising the earth. And, and uh, in the end, we went with a really small company outside of London who said they could do everything for us, you know, hardware, hosting, build the website, run, you know, run some aspects of the service. And for the most part, it was a total disaster. And we ended up, you know, doing a painful exit out of that contract. But... They, they put us in touch with an excellent contractor who built the website in six weeks. Yeah. And he's still employed at Photobox today. And he's like one of the key drivers of our innovation over that time. Pretty impressive. Yeah. So uh, out, of a, out of a negative outcome, you had a positive, mm. a positive influence in the company. So within four weeks, you'd raised half a million pounds, but it took you five years to raise again. So I think that's a nice little lesson for entrepreneurs that are coming up now who get obsessed about when to raise, how to raise, and how hard it can be. Can you explain what was going on in that time and how did you get by? Yeah, so so I think we originally said we would raise between 240 and £480,000. And, and looking back, the 240 was completely naive. We couldn't have done anything with that. But as it was, um, there was a lot of interest and we got to, we got to 480 within a week. And in fact, I was sending back some checks. We, we thought we're not going to get more than that. It would just be uh, difficult to manage. Uh, so we raised that money, but it, it was a different time to now. A lot of the infrastructure we take for granted today with AWS or office space or whatever is, just didn't exist. We had to do everything from scratch. We had to go out and buy hardware. We couldn't get um, a lease agreement for the mini lab, which cost us 140 grand. So we had to pay cash for that because um, nobody would trust the startup at this time. 140,000 pound payment for a printer. Cash for a printer <laughs> from the 480,000 pound raise. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So uh, the money went down very, very quickly. Um, but we were very lean, and we we hired one guy to help us. But very lean, despite spending 140,000 pound on a printer. Well, we were lean on our monthly burn rate. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, it was all going well, and but we did have in mind that by the summer, six months into the project, we'd have to go out and raise more. 
Um, and, and during that time, lastminute.com had done their float and then everybody had declared the, you know, the end of the bubble and uh, suddenly the market became incredibly hostile to B2C businesses. And uh, we just, you know, all the angels went away. Um, VC funds, we were too small for them. So I, I think our original dream, which was build the service, launch it, but actually get rid of it quite quickly. You know, one year in and out uh, was gone. We we knew we were going to be in a, a slower cycle. Um, we did line up one investor, one kind of big high net worth, you know, family trust to come in. Um, and it all looked good. We agreed the price and the terms. But Did you meet him from work? Uh, so it was one of our first round investors who was, uh, you know, a financial a guy in the city, and he was representing a Middle Eastern family who, who were personal friends of his, and he he basically pledged to invest a million quid in this for twenty percent of the company. So we thought that was great progress, um, agreed terms, and the money never turned up. It, we kept chasing it, but there were all kinds of issues in the transfer and the, the origins and the money laundering. Um, conditions that needed to be satisfied not that there was anything wrong with the money it's just it had been parked for so long that it it, it didn't have credentials so we just realized after about six weeks of chasing this we were going to have to give up on it and do something else so in fact we we did raise some money um but we went back to our first round investors and did what's called a rights issue which is we give them the right to participate in a down round it was quite an aggressive down round because we were running very short um, they did that. We raised another hundred grand, um, and actually, that saw us through to cash flow break even a few months later. And we we didn't need to raise again uh, until uh, well, a process that started in two thousand and five. But I think that was for different reasons. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So it was it was tiny. I mean, I, I remember talking to people in the company more recently. So there and, were only three of you, weren't there? Yeah, there, there were three, and I think even after three years, there were only five of us or something like that. Um, but I remember showing somebody in the last couple of years a graph of daily revenues from Photobox for the first five years, and it took us eighteen months to get to the first thousand pounds day. And it took us in 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 all of the first five years, we only had one day that was more than twenty five grand. So it was a really really slow uh, increase, steady increase, but no hockey sticks. And and in fact, you know, I think if I if I had any regrets, it's that we were too satisfied with that steady slow small business growth, and we should have accelerated things a lot earlier. 
and why was that? Was that just because that was your mindset because there was no other desire or because you didn't really know better? I, I think we were just super conservative, both Mark and I. And maybe, you know, there are many ways in which we're different personalities and did different things within the business. But we were both very cautious and we we didn't want we in a way I had no doubt the business would succeed. But I just felt it needed time. And uh, we the last thing we wanted to do was to burn out of cash. And we were seeing lots of competitors at the time come in very aggressively, spend lots of money, and then disappear six months later. And we thought we're not going to be one of those. So you went for staying power. Yeah. You said you regret that, but you've it's been a success. Do you, you regret that because you think it could be more of a success or you could have done it in, in less time? I think, I, I think we could have done it in less time. I mean, in retrospect, obviously, it's easy to, to say that, but it, it's... Yeah, I think we were too patient waiting five years for any kind of um, next stage event in the growth of the company. It was quite tricky, though, because, yes, I can see where you're coming from at the same time with industry stuff like this, where there's a few competitors. Yeah. uh, Longevity and survival is basically nine tenths of the law. You can outlast. It is. We, We did have about 23 investors at the beginning and half of them were you know, city professionals who were very relaxed, they could see it was going okay. I I think investors have always described us as kind of mid-range boring. We're never going to be an Instagram. We weren't burning out of cash. We were kind of boring in the middle. And the professionals could see that was a nice, steady contribution to their portfolio. But the less experienced investors were saying, you know, come on, guys, it's been five years, you know, what are you going to do to get me any kind of return? And some of them were approaching retirement age. And kind of on our backs every month and we did feel that pressure. So when you finally did your uh, your larger round, um, what was the actual story behind how you became more than just photo box but a whole group? Because you decided to raise a round as part of a wider story, correct? Yeah, kind of. It, it's Again, it's it's a kind of personal thing. I um, In 2005, I think my, my patience was running out. I, uh, I, I, I was personally running out of money. There was a lot of... Uh, a lot of sacrifice that went into running this small business for five years. Um, I'd given up, you know, Mark and I had both given up good careers in the city. Um, we had young kids, you know, it, it's getting to that kind of peak point of expense in a family family cycle. And uh, I was thinking, you know what, we've either got to raise more or, or give up. And the best story for me to conceive of doing that was to go to move into Europe. Because I think at this point, by being... The tortoise and you know going slow and steady we'd got to be uk number one we we did a lot of white label deals with isps and we'd covered most of the big ones in the uk so we we had this number one slot in the uk but it wasn't enough to make us feel satisfied so we thought let's move into europe um let's go raise money to move into europe so we lined up a a small aim listing with a bank um and the, the secret was we couldn't do it organically. We had to go out and find somebody to acquire. So we found a small Swiss company uh, that was covering lots of countries. Um, they, they seemed like a perfect fit for us. We agreed terms. This is probably mid-2005. Uh, and went over to do due diligence. And I discovered that, you know, whilst kind of diving into their database, they had an orders table with lots of zeros in it for tax. And They'd never paid any tax on their orders, uh, which was a kind of a bit of a glitch. They thought being a Swiss company, they didn't have to. But in fact, they were you know, shipping to the EU and manufacturing in the EU. So we realized this was going to be a huge problem. The deal fell apart. Um, they that's actually, what people fans of Brexit were following Switzerland for, hoping that we won't have to pay tax again as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. But um, it, the deal fell apart. And we kind of uh, thought, well, we've got this aim listing ready to go let's call our nearest competitor in france and see if they want to do a deal we phoned them up a, a company called photoways very very similar to photobox two guys started it at the same time and we explained the situation to them and they said well instead of you buying us why don't we buy you we've just raised some usvc money and that's what we ended up doing and that closed in april 2006 well, it's quite an unusual acquisition story because you then carried on being photo box and ultimately you guys were the ones running the show. So how did that actually transcribe? Because from my limited knowledge, that does sound quite unusual. Well, there's a lot of kind of grey areas in mergers and acquisitions and, and the terminology is largely irrelevant most of the time. Um, they they ended up buying us because um, several factors. One was they'd gone out and raised the VC money, so they had the cash in the bank. 
Uh, the second thing was, even though they started at the same time as us with the same business model, they'd gone for that more aggressive marketing-led, discounting-led approach. So they'd actually achieved more growth in those five years than we had. Not, not a lot more, but a bit more. And so it became more of a kind of 60-40 thing. So we were very happy to be acquired by them, but it was clear that on day one of the merged entity, um, we were going to be running it or very actively involved in running it. And we also made a decision collectively that the photo box name would play better across Europe than Photoways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the two founders of Photoways, uh, not immediately, but you know, over the next few months, uh, decided to move on anyway and wanted to do other startups. Uh, and we brought in a new CEO at the time, uh, a guy called Stan, who stayed with us for 10 years in the end and brought all the experience that I think Mark and I were missing in terms of getting the company to the next level. And did you guys, were you guys able to take some exit cash at the time and return and exit some of your investors through that acquisition? Yeah, yeah. So, the, so actually, you know, it was very much on our minds that we wanted to get something for those first round investors who'd been very patient for six years in the end. Uh, and they got a good return, very healthy, you know, return. And for the UK ones, it was tax free. Um, yeah, Mark and I got uh, a bit off it, it in a way. What was first offered or what we first kind of agreed to was very small. It would have just, you know, cleared a few debts. Uh, then we realized that the risk factors were higher and we bumped it up a bit, but it wasn't by any means a life changing amount. But yeah, we were happy. And we had a, uh, I think one of the <clears throat> smartest things we did was we we asked what the strategy was for the new company. And um, one of the answers that came back was, well, we're going to sell it quite quickly. And we said, how confident are you? And they said, very confident. And we said, just in case you don't sell it, can we have a contract that says we have a right to sell you more shares if you don't? And and that, Mark and I, I think, think back as one of the best things we did because the sale didn't go through, but then we had a, a right to sell more shares a couple of years later. So at least we got a bit more out. At the same price that you were... Or at an improved valuation? Or... Um, I think it was... Uh, I think it was the same price, but, but it, you know, one of the issues sometimes when you merge with a bigger company is it's a paper transaction. You get shares in the new company and people yeah. say, believe in us, you know, we'll all, we'll all do well at the end. But if that exit is a long time out, then you're waiting a long time. So just being able to sell any shares, you know, as a, as a founder, your shares have always gone up enormously in value anyway, from nominal to to a, a market value. So, um, yeah, it was it was still a good deal. So along the way, you did buy quite a few other companies and uh, arguably you actually bought a brand bigger than your own in Moonpig. Yes. So um, was that an especially exciting moment? How did that one come about? And how was your... Was that your favourite acquisition or how, how can you sort of describe that? Because obviously for UK listeners, that's a very, very recognised brand with a very, very catchy jingle. Yeah, I think it. I got asked to go and speak at my, my school a couple of years ago at their prize giving day. And um, in, in preparation for it, they said, would you mind just talking about Moonpig? Because that's the only brand the kids know. So uh, we know it has that very high recognition. Um, it is a special deal. Um so I knew Nick Jenkins right at the beginning of Photobox that started around the same time. Uh, we even outsourced our card production to them at one point and used to go and collect card, a box of cards every day and they were printing them. We did think about merging the two companies together in, I think, around 2003 or four, um, but it, it felt too expensive at the time. And then I think we ended up paying 60 times the original price that we thought was too expensive. And talking about multiples, I actually saw Nick Jenkins last week and he was telling me how he managed to come up with a business essentially where he bought paper at 3p and sold it at £3. Yes. Making him one of the most investable uh, businessmen for VCs around because who else has a hundred times margin? Uh, yeah, I think there's a few other bits and pieces involved in his cogs, but yeah, it, it was still a very profitable company, Hopefully high he growth. Didn't tell you those cogs until you bought them. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it's um, it, it was great, and I think we were starting to think about you know what what's the right way of um, getting to the next stage with Photobox or, or exiting or listing or something in 2010. We were exploring all of those options, and we came to the conclusion in 2010 we were a bit subscale that we we were too focused on one particular segment of personalization um you know in the european markets but we needed to um we needed to be bigger we needed to get to a certain scale of turnover and profitability and 
Moonpig was kind of the answer to that by plugging in their turnover, their growth, their profitability, and the fact that they were a very complementary business, also doing you know emotional products, personalization, um, sharing a lot of the logistics that we use, printing and, and shipping, customer services, web, web e-commerce. Um, it was just a really great fit. And people often ask me, because it was, you know, a high price paid, do we ever regret it? And never for a moment, not for a day. I think it transformed us, uh, made us a much more durable um, proposition. And we, you know, we're really still proud of that. And, and the culture that Moonpig brought into the company as well. How many employees did they bring in with them? I can't remember at the time. Maybe it was around 40 or 50, including production staff, something like that. Yeah, and you all moved into the same office. Uh, eventually, yeah. They they had an office in Bankside and Photobox was moving around a lot. We had um, an office in Paddington at the time. Uh, and eventually we, we moved into a kind of super office in Bankside. And it's it's very recognisable as the culture of Moonpig as it was then. Right. And when, when you're acquiring companies along the way and they've all got different cultures, you know, is that something that you found really hard as a founder sort of? understanding whether you change the culture to make it more suitable for all the different companies or you force existing cultures into your own? I, th- I think you have to be very sensitive to it. Um, you know, people, employees of a company are very defensive of their culture and they, they always fear when there's M&A that somebody's going to steamroller through and, and destroy it. Uh, or they, they assume the kind of worst motives about changes in the organisation. When in fact, you know, as one of the leadership team, we, we looked and just wanted to take the best of each company uh, and preserve that. And there was nothing, no hidden agenda to that. And I think in time, everybody understood that and it all worked out really well. But you do have to be very careful because whatever you say, people think, oh, that'll be gone, you know, in a month, in a month's time. Yeah. So as someone who's sold um, his company in the hundreds of millions, but has also actually done so many funding rounds along the way that you once told me you couldn't even count them. Um, do you actually have any lessons for anyone attracted to this kind of journey to think about before they venture too far down that path because it might sound very glamorous to hear the hundreds of millions but actually the 16 years the many funding rounds the ups the downs you know the five years of no funding you know there's a lot more to it than the exit story yeah I think you have to be patient and and very flexible you know I'm I'm a technologist fundamentally, but I loved the business side of it. And, and that's why I found working in a startup um, easy and rewarding because you get to see all aspects of the business. You know, various points we've been doing the customer services. We've obviously been doing the product a lot and um, and the printing. And it, you, you kind of have your hands on everything. And I, I think to last with a company as it goes through these different phases of evolution, you have to be similarly flexible. Even today, I'm diving into stuff that isn't on my job description, but um, I do it because it's useful and you know enjoyable. So I, I think you have to be flexible. Okay, so next section, just getting behind uh, the person a little bit behind the story. So just starting up, you look like a dodgy character. <laughs> have you ever been arrested? I, I've no, I've never, never been arrested. No, I'm a very good person, very good citizen. I have been cautioned by uh, naval intelligence, though, once for some hacking activity when I was 17. <laughs> but actually, I was helping them because I kind of uncovered some urban um, uh, pipe bombing, you know, activists uh, account on a mainframe in Virginia. And um, they, they came over and uh, living in the UK, it's a bit weird to have US naval intelligence turn up mm. at your house, but they did. Um, you lived with your parents? I was living with my parents. You yeah. yourself? <laughs> I, well, it was just a bit bizarre. And they kind of came up, looked at my computer, took away printouts and things and then said, you know, you really shouldn't be poking around US computers. Uh, but that's that's as bad as it got. So yeah. It's still the most interesting, uh, close, close <laughs> to arrest story that we've had so far. So can you share an interesting fact that no one knows about you that's not that one? <laughs> uh, that's probably one. I, I, no, I, I'm not sure what it would be. Oh, I, I, I have a Florida driving license. And why? That is a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah. Uh, because when I was 17, uh, my parents owned an apartment near Fort Lauderdale in Florida and in the middle of my A-levels, I'm not particularly academic person. I didn't enjoy school and, and A-levels and stuff. Um, in the middle of my A-levels, I thought it would be more fun to go and live in Fort Lauderdale for a year than to continue doing A-levels. So I just went out there and I had to get a driving license. 
Um, and eventually, I think reality pulled me back, and I did come back, and 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 it was a miracle. But I got a grade C and a grade E in my A levels, which is a pass. Was a pass back in 1983. In case anyone wants to know why the banking system eventually <laughs> failed, it's because people like Graham got really senior jobs with a C and an E at A level. Yeah, it actually yeah says says a lot. It's okay. It's not your fault. It's the system. Yeah. So uh, no, that that was my um, brief foray into being a, a, an almost U.S. citizen. Is there any pass now? I don't know. It's not great, is it? I mean, it might be. Yeah. I, I've actually got I've got three sons, and only one of them's doing computer science. He's studying at Bristol, um, and he's like an A star student, so he gets it all from his mother, clearly. Um, but uh, it is really hard. He's thrown into you know coding for the first time, uh, writing you know elegant C programs compared to. Uh, some other colleagues on the on the course who've been writing code for eight years mm. so he's he's finding it he's gone back to the beginning again but i guess that's the point of uni right take take you through those first phases it's all you know just uh waste waste your time and stop you from becoming an entrepreneur you should be well he's doing plenty university? of that i went to university of westminster yeah okay. so having decided that i okay i'd finish a levels get a proper job um i i ended up going and doing a, a degree in computer science did you get into banking straight after your university degree? I, I got a, um, I did the milk round, which is where you get offered, you know, jobs when you come out of uni. And at the time, there was still kind of full employment in the city. And I got offered two jobs. One was for a tech company in High Wycombe, which actually sounded more interesting. And the second one was working for the London Stock Exchange, which sounded really boring. Mm. Uh, and my dad said, you got to take the LSE one. And I did. And it was great, a great two years. In fact, they taught me to be an Oracle application developer, which is a bit boring. But um, it was a huge foundation in, you know, the, the, the reality of databases, data modeling, understanding client needs. Um, and it was great. I went from there to a short period of con uh, consulting. And then into my contracting in the city. Yeah. So a kind of a corporate start, really. I mean, yeah. Very corporate start. So do you actually see yourself as an entrepreneur? Do you look, do you look back now? Do you do do you look back at it historically and say my career and my persona suit me thinking of myself as an entrepreneur, or you know how does that kind of has it sit with you? Uh yeah, mixed really. I mean, I I recognise the label that other people give me. I I kind of think that entrepreneurs. For me, it feels like people who've done it more than once because that proves you've got the mindset, right? I could have just been lucky or been the type of person that doesn't want to move around very much. So, um, but I, I think you have to be um, willing to take on risk. I think at, at school and uni, I always, I didn't really kind of want to fall in with, you know, cubs and scouts and group activities and wanted to do things my own way. And uh, I think that's a skill that's quite common in entrepreneurs. So I, I recognize I have the mindset for it, but maybe after I've done another startup, somebody should say, then you're an entrepreneur. Right, okay, that's interesting. So it's more it's more about the bug. Yeah, I think so. And the serial element to that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's when you really earn your credentials because I think the ability to take an idea and transform it into a, a business model that works and prove that you weren't just lucky the first time. I mean, you don't manage one football club, club and be called a football manager, right? That's true. But it's interesting because now you've just given a distinction on success. And of course, success might not come for a lot of entrepreneurs their fifth or sixth, seventh, eighth time. And you would think of them potentially as more entrepreneurial than you because they've done it more. Yeah. But, you know, is that whole, or is that a whole distinguished difference between being a british mindset entrepreneur than an american one where in america if you fail you're fucking great as long as you do it again i remember going to uh i went to founders the side event of web summit three yeah. years ago yeah. and uh it was about a group of 150 of us uh there and i was really pleased to be there but i found that nearly everybody there was on like their third exit and and i was still plugging away with photobox with no real exit in sight and i i did feel like um i was you know a c grader at that event Interesting. <laughs> um, do you know what entrepreneur actually means? Well, I presume it's the, the, the French term, you know, to take between, to, to, to bring together two halves. It's funny because we get a different, a different definition every time I we do that it. Is, actually the right is one that the right one? one? Rich, do you, want to let, do, you, do you want to let Graham know what, what you thought it was last time after, we, after actually searching? We Googled it last time and it was a uh, French, uh, French construction worker. But that was definitely <laughs> wrong. That's definitely wrong. <laughs> So, but yeah, I think uh, I think your answer was much better. 
But we did spend a whole entire interview determined that was correct. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. It's recorded. It's recorded. <laughs> um, so how do you see yourself? As in, if you don't think of yourself as an entrepreneur, how do you see yourself? How do you label yourself, so to speak? Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm just, you know, a kind of positive, flexible person that's willing to dive into any situation. And I think the people I work with find me useful for that reason. But that's a very positive spin. The other side of it is that I can be very dogmatic and very focused and very kind of, I think we really need to do it this way. And I'm aware, particularly now um, in, in, you know, having been at the company so long, that people give my word too much weight. Mm. And that can sometimes kind of stifle the conversation or the creativity in the room. So I, I'm trying to use it more sparingly. Yeah, modest. Um, on that note, then, if we ask your co-founder, Mark Chapman, who probably knows you best of all, how would he describe you as a person and how would he describe you as an entrepreneur? I, I think I think Mark and I are very different and, and that's why it worked. You know, he was very solid on operations and process and was constantly thinking, if this is going to be a real company, where do we need to be in two years and how do we get there? And I was all about what deal can we do today and how can we get more orders in the next two days? You know, I was very in the moment. Um, and I, I think he saw me as somewhat erratic and volatile. And um, I remember in a slightly heated moment, he described me as immature. <laughs> but uh, we're great friends. And uh, I think that complementary nature really, really works for us. So what's quite funny is how you just said that he would describe you, but actually how he described you as an entrepreneur, having asked him, is a natural startup guy, creative, driven, calm, and pragmatic, which is almost all of the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> I think I've learned that from him. Yeah. Uh, these together with an almost unnatural productivity delivers enormous amounts in short timescales, um, which probably, you know, that, that final part probably relates to that uh, impatience that you might have for mm. getting shit done. Um, but just, just to follow with the theme and see how well you know yourself, so how would, how would he describe you as a person? Um, oh, he's probably being super polite when he yeah, talks probably, to you. Probably, so. <laughs> probably, probably, yeah, yeah, he's talking about yeah, exactly. the he's talking about the singer in Australia. <laughs> uh, how would he describe me? I I don't know. Energetic, okay, so and he's, annoying. Yeah, he's just <laughs> tired and uh, very. Uh, <laughs> he said, "You're three wins, three draws, and three losses." Marked a terrible career as a football coach. No, so he described you as loyal, honest, great with people, and a good listener. So um, I'll accept which, that. Yeah, I do try and be very um, non-political. It just doesn't help anything or anyone. And and it was interesting merging with the French company because um, the, I think the, our, our French colleagues were very very suspicious about these Brits rolling into town and assumed we had this hidden agenda and were very political. And it's taken me many years to convince them otherwise. <laughs> Yeah. So um, you're a successful guy. What does success feel like now? And does it feel different to how it used to? Do you actually feel successful? Um, I So life since we did the sale to private equity this year really doesn't feel any different. Um, it's nice to de-risk your life and it's nice to kind of know that you've got to that certain almost artificial success criteria, but um, no, it doesn't feel very different. I, I mean, it is I think, ultimately a label, right? So. Yeah, I think a key thing for me was, um, you know, we live in West London, London's an expensive city, and we, we wanted to have a slightly bigger house, like one spare room for mm -hmm. visitors, one extra bathroom. And West London's the nicest part of London. Uh, and well, you know, I think many people would disagree, but it, it is a nice part of London. And we, we just wanted to get a, a nice family house, um, nothing extravagant. And back in 2011, we managed to buy a, a fairly run-down house and then spent the next two years doing it up. But that was my only objective. I'm not a yacht guy. I'm not a Maserati guy. We have a nine-year-old Renault Scenic, and I have my micro-scooter. That's, that's it. Um, I think the other thing is, in the early days of Photobox, it was so, we were so short of cash that um, we gave up like buying posh coffees and going to cafes, and like, my kids couldn't take them for a hot chocolate at the weekend it was that you know kind of tough and so buying a, buying a coffee every morning feels like that kind of Luxury. that feels like success 
Yeah, that's nice. So uh, I guess the comparison is to respect the little things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so who do you actually think is successful? Is there someone that you look up to as an entrepreneur or, or various people, or it doesn't even have to be a company founder, but who, who do you think of as successful when you think of that word? Um, well, I guess there's lots of different ways of measuring success. I, I, I love it when you see people who love what they're doing or have big dreams and they're progressing towards them. You know, I, I love the fact that Elon Musk is thinking so big uh, and and making progress. I mean, like if you were going to go out and buy an EV today, you would, would you go with you know Renault who are probably dabbling with it, or would you go with Tesla who who really clearly understand this market? And, yeah. Well, it does. And it depends if I want to take me to Mars or not. <laughs> but no, I, I think it's great that he's moving the needle forward, and um, I yeah think yeah, admire people who set big dreams and make progress towards them. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, pretty common, pretty common uh, person, but I think that actually uh, just demonstrates how impressive he is to so many people and how uh, aspirational. Yeah, I, I also have huge admiration for people uh, who who follow artistic endeavor. You know, like I I play a bit of music. My kids are much better than me. They they're really good. But what do um, you play? a bit of guitar, you know, kind of busking stuff. But I would love to be able to just like go in and, and play something or perform in a band and I never will I'm just not that kind of person but I have huge admiration for people who can do that and so that's another form of success hmm. just quickly going back to Elon Musk like, what's, what's your opinion on the strategy that entrepreneurs should take in terms of like focusing on stuff versus being broad with stuff like he's running two three perhaps companies uh, Jack Dorsey Square Twitter yeah. what's your view on entrepreneurs that try to do that and like you know you, you have the experience of running one company for yeah and that's hard enough so i, I also I think how much it, do you actually believe that they're really running all of those I well mean, I, maybe I, maybe elon musk but i really don't think jack dorsey does shit at twitter i think he just focuses on square so i, I think i think there's there's a lot of different types of entrepreneur and and you know that those types of people they're clearly they're, they're talking in terms of big dreams and big goals and they're steering their company, but they're not there, you know, deep in the detail, you know, certainly not in the operational detail every day. And that's fine. That's another type of entrepreneur. You know, the, the trick is with those is don't screw it up, right? If, you, if you're caught with businesses failing because you were distracted, that's, you know, that's the worst. Um, but if you can pull it off, then why not? You know, why not give that high level steering to multiple companies? Do you agree, Rich? Well, I have a hard enough job running one company. <laughs> it does seem quite unfathomable, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I guess the reality is, and I, I thought about exactly this as well, is that you know, without without taking away a lot of the credit that founders should get, but really, if if you've got a great COO, they end up doing a lot of the really tough heavy lifting. So if you mm. had amazing operations people in every one of those businesses, you probably could take a higher level step back potentially you you can but there, there's it's a really scary, good article like that was doing the rounds a couple of years ago about uh, or maybe it was more recent of uh, is is tim cook turning into steve Barmer? you know is he the really solid operational guy who became ceo and is milking the company for all the all the growth and profit it can get to but without ever taking it to a visionary new place yeah, and, creativity yeah and 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 i think that you know you can you can be that visionary CEO dabbling and you've got to have that really, really solid operational layer. But the problem is if you let the company just be run by that operational layer without giving the visionary um, input, then it'll eventually run out of steam. Yeah. I mean, it's teamwork at the end of the day, correct? Yeah. Um, did you have a mentor help you along the way at all? Um, no one person, but I think, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of a really strong believer now in serendipity and... Um, being being successful in in creating a company and it thriving is it feels like there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of hard work but the serendipity piece is really important i think you i was lucky enough that um there were lots of people that kind of fell into my lap that were useful to us and advised me really well and it wasn't just chance it was kind of building those connections getting out and talking to people a lot remembering one tiny little fact that a year later becomes useful and so there's been lots of people along the way that have really helped us advance and um, uh, so I, I remember for example one of our investors and board members at Photobox uh, 
uh, Jean-Marc uh, Boulier, he, he said to me that when you put two companies together, there has to be a kind of really simple statement. And, and it always starts with the words, it's really simple. You know, company A does this, but doesn't do this. And company B, you know, complements that. And if you can wrap up that transaction in that really simple statement, um, it, it'll work. And if you can't, if it takes you, you know, six pages or 30 pages of PowerPoint to explain why this merger should happen, it's never going to happen. That's always been good advice to me as well. Yeah, that's very solid advice. Um, quite a hot topic at the moment with, um, well, I guess you, you might consider this a more, a more modern, uh, fluffy entrepreneur's dilemma, but uh, a lot being made on sort of mental fortitude of the ups and downs and how people manage it and lots of tricks like meditation and stuff. Have you ever been into any of those things? Are you, have you ever sort of recognized any sort of um, depression, mental illness? Has it, have you always been happy? Like how, how can you sort of uh, look back on your journey in, in, yeah. in that kind of way? So I, I think I've always been um, almost unnaturally positive and, and I do tend towards happiness quite a lot, but I get very stressed at times. So Whilst I have a very positive belief that um, good things, you know, celebrate good things and bad things can be turned around uh, and, you know, whatever is going wrong, any kind of crisis, you make a list of all the things you're going to do about it and you start at the top and work your way down. That's all cool. But I did get really super stressed. And I remember um, after the merger of the UK and the French business in 2006, I lobbied to create a single platform for the group. And about um, a year into this, in 2007, I realized I'd bitten off far more I could, than I could chew. It was turning out to be a horrible project, you know, really delayed, re consuming huge amounts of resource, not really, I wasn't confident it was going to get there anytime soon. And I just remember being stressed all the time. And even though at the time I didn't kind of recognize it, it was, I just started having palpitations and ended up in hospital. Mm. Um, I thought, this is crazy. I'm like, I've got to do something about this stress. And I, I just started to take more effort in exercise, swimming, um, you know, drinking less coffee, uh, just kind of recognizing the physical needs as, as well as the mental needs. And, and that definitely helped. And I... Um, Feeling guilty about that coffee I gave you this morning now. <laughs> no, no, I drink lots of coffee now and it, it, it's working fine. But um, I, uh, yeah, I, I exercise a lot these days. I run, I swim, and, and I don't feel at all guilty about taking that hour out of my day because I think it kind of contributes to overall productivity and good outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So people say that entrepreneurs are crazy. Do you feel like you're crazy or have you ever felt like you're crazy? I think you have to be a bit irrational, right? If you, um, th there's, a, there's a quote by George Bernard Shaw that says something about um, that the rational man fits himself to the world around him and the irrational man tr seeks to change the world to his needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, we, if you just accept the status quo, uh, you don't innovate, you don't, you don't become an entrepreneur. Uh, so you have to be a bit irrational and then probably nine out of ten of us are so irrational it, it's off the scale and doesn't work and then some of us are a little bit anchored but I, I think you have to be a little bit um, different to everyone else. Rich would you consider yourself an anchor? Um, no. <laughs> I, I said anchor. Uh, yeah okay you're right. Yes um, in that case. Okay good. Um, so you seem like, and obviously I've, I've spent some time with you, so it's not even seem like you just are a very jovial, I guess, um, happy and glass half full kind of guy, like you say. And obviously yeah. you got full reason to be, and it's not like I met you 10 years ago when things were a lot more stressful, but you don't really seem like you have that many bugbears, but you must do because you are human. So what pisses you off? Um, what pisses me off? So <clears throat> even though I've talked to you about relaxation and, you know, not getting too stressed, I still move everywhere really quickly. Uh, I walk quickly. People always criticize me. Somebody called me rocket legs, which is ridiculous. But, you know, I, I it annoys me when we move too slowly. And, and I think what annoys me most of all of anything in the world is people in front of me walking slowly, quite wide on the pavement with a wheelie bag. Uh, because oh, you just can't get past them. That does sound really <laughs> and, I, and maybe that's a metaphor for life, you know, people that are blocking the path and going yeah. slowly. So. Have you yeah. seen that, that video of the person with the bike? I have. Uh, I, I want one of those. I think I, think I should get one of those. This person's got this bike bell and they, they've got 
the stone walking pattern. They just ring the bike bell, you know, like that ring ring. Yeah. And the people move. They naturally are like, oh, get out of the way. That is brilliant. I want that. Yeah. And of course, you had to come via Liverpool Street today, and those escalators are stuffed full of those kind of people. Uh, yes, well. You Very know, frustrating. I took that as a moment of mindful, mindfulness coming yes. up the escalator. Yeah, breathing nice and slowly. <laughs> What's been the biggest mistake you've made in business? Uh, I... Hmm. I, I don't think there's been one kind of big mistake. The big mistake would have been doing something that destroyed the company. Um, I, I think, like I say, a, a kind of regret is that we didn't go faster in the first five years, but uh, no no big mistake. Okay, that's a very good thing and confident to be able to say, but obviously that makes it true. Uh, what's the weirdest story from your photo box days? Can you share any uh, potentially odd stories that I might know of? I've got oh. some weird photos. Uh, well, weird, weird photos is a separate question, right? Sure, you're, 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 you're jumping, you're jumping the good oh, yeah, stuff sure, so sorry. that we get both answers out should of frame. Should have read this earlier. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, sure. so Graham, tell us the weird story first. I just think people are weird. You know, people we've employed at, at times of just off the scale, and um, you know, employees going AWOL and then finding out they've been arrested, or yeah, it just. Oh, we need no, to interview them for that. <laughs> nothing. Um, I I can't think of I can't think at the moment. You're putting me on the spot, but I can't think of the one big story. But no, there's been lots of lots of little funny things. Over Any, the anyone years. found to be sleeping in your dark room? Uh, no, there's been very little of that kind of activity that I know about. But um, so should we do the photos one? Yeah, then? I'm you just might, trying to think you, what got, I can. I mean, you've got some great photo stories. There was uh, the the German one, if I recall. The German one. You have to remind me what that was. Have I told you that so in a pub the, somewhere? The the one where the oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so Germans. Yeah. So there's different country attitudes to nudity, and we were always very sensitive about it in the UK, uh, Mark and I, because we were trying to position ourselves as family friendly, and we were constantly trying to do deals with ISPs that were, you know, had this family friendly policy. So we were like zero tolerance on nudity, um, and we used to, in fact, have. On our back office screen, where you could kind of see orders going through and stuff, there would be a little ticker of photos being uploaded because there was quite small volume at the time. And your eye would sometimes, if people were uploading, um, you, you know, personal uh, bedroom activity photos, you, your eye gets drawn to it quick, quite quickly. And also, they don't upload just one; they upload like forty of them. So you'd see this little ticker going through, and you click on it, and then go, "Okay, we're going to nuke that account or have a quiet word with them or something." Um, but when we moved into Europe, we realized that um, lots of German people produce nude calendars at Christmas. Uh, so we had to kind of get more used to it. And the weirdest thing you've ever had printed on? Ah, oh, weirdest thing we've ever had printed. I don't know. We have lots of emotional stories, you know, pictures of uh, dead people that they're, you know, and it always seems to be those orders that go wrong, you know, like uh, not, not that a lot go wrong, but, you know, it's always the case where customer services hears from a lady who's got a recently deceased relative and they're putting together these prized pictures from over the years and we've, we've, we've screwed up the order in some way and we have to get it to them quickly. So lots, lots of that stuff. But, you know, we're dealing with people's memories and emotions and, um, it's not just that ink and paper thing. Mm. It's, You've always it's been very conscious of that. Yeah, yeah. And always let people know that actually it's, it's actually printed. Someone will see it. Yeah, yeah. We used to also get people that would kind of test our nudity policy by uh, by by embedding um, you know very saucy pictures in the middle of a normal batch, and uh, when somebody kind of flicks through them just to check the quality, that's when they spot it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your biggest personality flaw? Uh, biggest personality flaw probably too trusting I, I kind of take people on face value and if somebody has that led you has that, has that been a problem for you in the past or have you been lucky to get away with that um, I think in work I've been lucky enough to get away with it very few people have really screwed things up there. I think personally I've been a bit naive I've been one of those people that bought a phone on eBay a few years ago for my son yeah, right. and uh, that that didn't work yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> um, um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, and it can't be a George Bernard Shaw quote. Best piece of advice? Uh, I I don't know. There's not one single one. I just had great advice from people over the years. And this is Nick Leeson. Don't do what he did. <laughs> I uh, 
yeah, I can't, I can't really recall. I, I just think, um, you know, always kind of sit back, assess the situation, and, um, and and decide what you want to do next. Don't do a kind of knee jerk reaction. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to have really smart people around me as well. So, what's the best piece of advice you'd give to young entrepreneurs who are starting off on their journey now? I, I think it's. I think it's really sort out in their mind why they're trying to do it. Do they want to be an entrepreneur or do they want to solve a problem that is, that's visible to them in their lives? I think it's really difficult to say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to find a business model, you know, I'm going to go out there and create a business. I think it's far better to feel passionately about something, a problem you want to solve. Um, and if, if they haven't got that problem they want to solve, then... Perhaps don't go and sit in WeWork. Uh, you know, get a get a normal job, mm. build up your experience, build up your contacts. Um, you know, let let your mind have a bit of time to form what you need to do. Uh, don't try and force it. I, I think it's it's difficult to force it. That's the point. I think that's great advice. <laughs> like looking looking back, there were certainly times when uh, for our first business, I was just thinking. You know what would have been brilliant is getting a nine to five job I didn't give a shit about and sitting there and doing the bare minimum, but having a salary mm. and spending time on the thing I wanted to do. And it actually frees up a lot of the pressure as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that's actually got something often. Well, you could even, um, George Spencer from Rentify, I don't know if you've heard of Rentify, they, they're doing, they help landlords essentially manage their properties. He was working advertising and, and wanted to learn more about the property market because he saw an opportunity there. And so he left, and, and everyone thought it was bizarre because he left this good job in advertising and then worked at Foxman's as an estate agent mm. just because it was a salary and he wanted to learn yeah. about how right. to Right, go get a job in the industry yeah. if you're interested. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's all, it's all too easy from the outside to say, I'm going to disrupt an industry mm. which you know nothing about. Absolutely. And then you yeah. go in there and people say, yeah, but there's already a solution for that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I also find that there's a lot of like lingo terminology in a lot of industries where our business is in the restaurant industry and both my co-founder and I aren't involved, weren't involved in, in restaurants. And for the first year or 18 months of our business, we kept calling stuff wrong, like different to what the, the restaurant, instead of- Wait, that's a main course? They call it restaurant chains. Chains is not a thing, it's like operators. They call them operators. And instead of restaurants, they call them sites. Right. But just like stuff like that, it's just yeah. kind of- uh, well, That's like an e-commerce one, it's like merchants. And it's like merchants, yeah, how old exactly. is that? But that's what they call them. But you, so. you wonder why you're not getting any sales. It's like these guys have no idea about your business coming yeah. in, so it takes a while to figure that out. Mm. Um, just to wrap up, if you could start all over again, would you rather? A sustainable, profitable business in year one, or a high-growth tech startup all over again. Uh, so I've done the conservative, uh, slow-growth thing. So I'd have to go for the second option. Interesting. But would you actually do that, or is this like, is it, you know, I know this is a hypothetical, but just taking it further out of interest, is that something that you would consider doing? So I, I'd like to think that I've got enough experience now to um, to accelerate a good idea. I think I don't think I would be the one to come up with the idea and to be there on absolute day one, but to come into something where it's, you know, small number of people, perhaps they've had some seed funding and they're definitely pre-series A. Yeah, I'd love to, I, I'm working with a number of startups at the moment, um, just kind of as an informal advisor and the best ones are where the opportunities there and everything's on the up and actually they can't even figure out quite what business model they want to follow yet they've got so many different directions to go in i think that's a really exciting time and and that's somewhere where i think i could help because i can help steer them on what might work and not work and would it be b2b or b2c or does it just not matter it's more about the challenge if it's interesting yeah it do doesn't really matter but you know i i know a lot about b2c at this stage but also there's a lot about e-commerce that's kind of infuriating it's kind of locked in a certain model in some way um so it might be nice to try something that's slightly outside of that core e-commerce model so on a very related subject then would you do another business in e-commerce and content or would you do anything else other than that oh i i'd i'm very open-minded and uh we'll see what the future holds but for the moment i'm still at photobox sure no, but I'm not pressing you on this. It's just, it's just, like, does your gut feel like you do e-commerce all over again? Or is it like, you know what? I, I'd rather, I don't know anything about and something else than that. That's more interesting. Yeah, anything. I, I think I'd like to, you know, if, if I was picking from a menu, I would pick something that makes a difference to people's lives, but isn't about selling them stuff through a shopping cart. 
Cool. Uh, would you raise money from investors you don't get on with at all or fail? Oh, I... Well, if it's that or failure, yeah, I'd, I'd raise it from them and I'd learn to work with them. I think, you know, investors are uh, people that uh, you have to understand what their motives are, what they need, and you have to keep them well fed with information and, you know, rational choices or explain to them the choices you're making. Um, but I've also seen startups that are paralyzed by toxic investors who, who are just like it's burn the house down, you know, get what I want or burn the house down. And I think that's a really tough situation to be in. Uh, I, I really feel for them when they're in that situation. Would you start with the same co-founder, different co-founder or no co-founder? I, I would love to work with Mark again. Um, I don't think Mark wants to do another startup. So, yeah, again, I'd be open. I, I like working with people with complementary skills who I feel will toe the line, you know, contribute and, um, and are smart. So whoever, yeah. yeah. And finally, would you start it in the UK again, mainland Europe or the USA? Uh, so I, having traveled to Paris every week for nine years, I'm kind of keen on not doing a lot of travel. I love London. I love living in London. I think there's enough exciting here stuff going on here, even post-Brexit. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I'd love to do something quite close to home. So I thought you were going to say France. And I was going to say, well, if you're lucky, Marine Le Pen will be in soon. You won't be able to recognize <laughs> France, Britain or America. So <laughs> yeah, there's not a particularly great tax regime in France for entrepreneurs. No, very true. Very true. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Okay, well, so concludes a fantastic session with a man who's certainly been through his fair share of ups and downs. Um, I guess if I could really comment on the one key thing that struck me talking to Graham, it's actually that his original intention with his co-founder, Mark, was to be a small, sustainable business. They didn't really have any aspirations towards exit, at least not in the early days. And that's precisely what led them to be a credible, profitable and growing business, which in the end attracted suitable acquirers. So... That's a lesson for you, Rich, you greedy so-and-so. <laughs> um, that organic nature of growing your business was ultimately the very thing that led to such explosive growth. But equally, it's really a story of patience and loving what you do rather than seeking an outcome. That's definitely food for thought for budding entrepreneurs there. So thank you very much to Graham. Now, Rich, why don't you let us know what kind of uh, information and what kind of person we've got on next week's episode? Well, Dan, we'll be recording from none other than the world-famous Buckingham Palace uh, in an exciting and extremely rare interview with Her Majesty the Queen's son, Prince Andrew. Oh, yes. Well, uh, he's not really known as an entrepreneur in the typical sense, I guess. So um, why have we actually chosen him? Well, actually, he is a founder. He's the founder of something called Pitch at Palace, which is a global event. Uh, seeking out the best entrepreneurs in the country and you know him because you actually did pitch at Palace. That is a fact. Thank you very much for the plug, Rich. Um, anyway, please join us next week and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud and or YouTube, whatever tickles your fancy. And you can catch up with everything that you might have missed and more on www.secretleaders.com. See you next time. Mm -hmm.